Recovery Elevator, episode 95. That's not okay. It's not cool that mom acts that way. It's not funny. So I, ha- I had to decide the buck stops here. Otherwise, I'm just perpetuating a culture, a family culture that is definitely dangerous. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 27 months and one day. On today's podcast, we've got Melissa. She's been sober since November 1st, 2016, and she's a bartender. I'm sure there are a lot of you guys listening right now that are saying, I can't quit drinking. It's, it's who I am. I'm just that guy. I'm that girl. I'm the life of the party. People are going to look at me differently when I decline a beverage. I tell myself, people are going to react strangely when they say, hey, Paul, can I get you a beer? No, you know, I think I'm going to get an SD. They're going to be like, sure thing, Paul. Wait a second. What the fuck did you just say? Side note, I don't think I've ever properly matched up the beeps with a curse word. It's pretty hard to do even when you're editing the podcast. You've heard me mention before on the podcast that I used to own a bar in Spain. With almost 10 years under my belt from when that happened, I often say to myself, wow, that was from a different lifetime. Did that really happen? Number one, I was probably blacked out for the majority of it. Number two, I owned a bar in Spain. That even sounds strange when I say it nowadays. I often tell people that was the best and the worst time in my life. I don't talk about it often because it hurts. It's scary. It's like the first time I watched Jaws 2. I didn't go to bed the entire night. I think I was seven years old. I think if I was on an airplane and I flew over Spain, I would simply shut the airplane window. I was the guy that drank copious amounts of alcohol and gave it out like they were goldfish crackers. In this bar, called Dolce Vita in the tourist district, it was a party bar. We didn't exactly have new age playing through the stereo system. If you dance on the bar, you got a free shot. And usually, okay, every time, I took a shot with the people dancing. We would send a lot of people to nightclubs. Dolce Vita, we had our own bottle at these nightclubs. It was a pretty cool setup. A pretty cool setup if you're not a raging alcoholic. At that point, and for about a decade afterward, I denied the fact that I had a drinking problem. Looking back, I went to Spain with a drinking problem. That was a dumpster fire waiting to happen. I'm thankful at my time spent in Spain because it precipitated. It sped up the entire drinking process. I would probably still be drinking right now at the age of 34 had Spain not occurred. But yeah, if you want to say, I can't quit drinking because it's who I am. I'm the life of the party. I can't possibly imagine going out and having fun without alcohol. Look, I hear you. You're preaching to the choir. But let me tell you one thing encouraging. Not only is it possible, it's a hell of a lot better afterward. Imagine going out to a nightclub, to a bar, to a wedding, whatever, and not needing a substance to enjoy the evening or the function. So it became clear at about after a year in Spain that I needed to quit drinking alcohol. As I prepare for this podcast episode, I started to jot down some notes. I cringed with each line that I wrote because these memories hurt to recall. They were painful. I could taste the bile, the throw up in my mouth. These are just a handful of the many memories that I actually don't ever want to remember again. I pissed away a lot of really cool opportunities in Spain. For example, one night while drinking at the bar, it was my friend Greg and I and two very attractive Swedish ladies. We were going to rent a car the next day and drive to France. What happened? I got way too drunk, decided to continue drinking all through the night and morning. And when they woke me up to go, I said, hey, look, Greg, here's 50 euros to cover my part in gas. Have fun. He was like, dude. Do you see the girls waiting at the doorstep? I'm like, Greg, man, I, 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 I just can't. In reality, I prefer to drink instead of going on a Euro vacation with two hot Swedes and my friend Greg. I took a weekend trip to the Alpujarras, a high region in the Sierra Nevada south of Spain. The point of this was for me to detox. 
I should have enjoyed the pristine mountain air. However, I didn't sleep at all any of the two nights, and halfway through the second night, I was starting to have like seizures or tremor. I have no idea what it was, but in my sleep, I rolled off the bed and hit my head on the nightstand. It effing sucked. There were so many beautiful women that I came into contact with in Spain. However, drinking was my number one concern. I played American football when I was in Spain. How cool is that? Yeah, again, that feels like a different life for me. I'm 5'9 and slow. How the hell was I playing American football? No clue. Yeah, before games, I didn't want to show up drunk and hungover, so I didn't sleep before the game. However, if you've ever tried to stop drinking and go to bed, and you've been drinking for, I don't know, 3-4 months straight, you can't sleep. So I'd be awake for like 30 hours straight playing a football game, and I suck. I'm not that athletic anyways, but a couple hours of sleep probably would have helped. I blacked out probably six, seven nights a week in Spain, and when I came home, I had a routine. I put the Braveheart soundtrack on in my Discman, and boom, went to bed. When I finally left Spain, I had audible hallucinations of William Wallace attacking Falkirk for no joke like three weeks. I looked underneath the seat on the airplane, this eight-hour flight across the Atlantic, couldn't find any speakers. It dawned on me, oh shit, I'm going crazy. The blinds that covered the storefronts. My brain was mentally trained that three blocks away when those blinds went up at 5.59 a.m., I would put on my shoes, my sweatshirt, go down, fabricate a story, and say, hey, I just got off work. I'm going to need one box of wine and two beers. I did this all the time. Did they really think that I was a construction worker coming off a long, hard day of work, improving the economy, improving the infrastructure of Spain, or just a total piece of shit millennial? Yeah, probably the second one. For years two and three in Spain, I lived on the fifth floor. I remember looking at that railing and just wanting to jump. It gets pretty damn cold in Granada, Spain. When I'd walk up to the bar, I would be sweating my ass off. Those would be called withdrawal symptoms. We've heard this one often on the podcast when I say, what's your worst memory from drinking? Well, mine as well is the loss of memory. I had so many lost memories. In fact, I was on a transatlantic flight back to America one time. I said, hey, what's your name to this gal next to me? And she looks at me and she's like, are you serious, man? Apparently, I had hooked up with this girl about two months previously. I felt like a total idiot. Good thing we only had seven hours and 58 minutes of the flight left. F-M-L. I got a DUI in Spain. Yeah, that sucked. Big time. I tried so hard to control my drinking, and when I was about two weeks away from going home, I would just let the wheels pop off one at a time. Controlling your drinking, not even like drinking or not drinking, just controlling the amount you consume when you're an alcoholic is exhausting. Oh yeah, welcome first panic attack. I got into a taxi cab thinking I was having a heart attack, I told him to drive to the hospital, like, why are you stopping at red lights, senor? I'm having a heart attack. Got there, panic attack. Damn it, damn it, damn it. I actually had a lot of visitors while in Spain. It was pretty cool. I was like, hey guys, you want to go check out the local Spanish symphony? And they're like, no, Paul, you've been telling us about this crazy Spanish nightlife, so I think we want to do that. Now I'm going to tie in some themes, and I'm thankful for every single one of these unpleasant experiences because it has transformed the trajectory and placed me in this seat today. But before I get to those themes, I want to talk about the pros. Some cool things did happen out there. Number one, I didn't die. I'm serious on that one. I think I got really close. Before I finally came home, I was chugging vodka and taking like four to five Ambien's a night. One morning I woke up thinking I had like three left. Yeah, I did five Ambien's in one night. That's some scary stuff. Number two, like I mentioned earlier, it accelerated my drinking. I'm thankful to be where I'm at in my journey right now and dealing it when I'm 34, single, and with a poodle named Ben. I'm not dealing with this when I have a family and kids. I also got to learn to play Spanish flamenco guitar. It's actually the music you're hearing right now. 
I don't remember much of it, strange, which is why I'm playing the same two chords over and over. I saw some cool places in this world. My Spanish didn't get any worse out there. I learned how to say firefly in Spanish, Luciernaga. I've always been an entrepreneur, but Spain was like a real-life MBA, in a different language of course. I'd like to think I was pretty successful, we were. However, I eventually had to walk away from the bar because I was killing myself. So I want to tie in some themes, some vital recovery themes that are value bombs of what I learned in Spain. But before we do that, let's hear from our interviewee. Melissa, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Yeah, Better thank you. Better than a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's a common response on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Well, I guess today's the 30th, so 30 days. Nice job. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, and let me ask just a question about your history here. When did you first realize that you might be couldn't control your alcohol? Well, that's probably been a number of times over the years. The first time I ever realized it, I guess, was probably about 10 years ago when I started having blackouts. And I knew when I would I'd go into a situation thinking I'm only going to have a couple and go home. And the next thing you know, I couldn't remember things or I would just, you know, wake up like the CRS, basically kicking myself for not sticking by what I would told myself in the beginning of the evening or whatever. Sure. And Melissa, I've already gotten way ahead of myself. I realized that listeners weren't part of the conversation that we had before I hit the record button, kind of getting to know each other. So tell listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and include some hobbies, what you like to do for fun. Sure. So I'm 41 years old. I've been a bartender now for about 15 years, and I'm, I've got four children. I'm happily married. What do I do for fun? Well, when you've got four kids and you work full time, you don't have a lot of free time. So I, I hit the gym a lot. I wouldn't necessarily say that's fun, but it's cathartic for me. I guess when I get home at night now, I watch Netflix a lot. I love it. And you sent me a sober selfie about two weeks ago. And then I reached out to you and say, hey, look, if you're willing to send in a sober selfie, let's do an interview. And you got back to me and said, I think in your email, you said you're a bartender. And I think it's just the way the world works. Somebody about a week before that email said, hey, have you ever interviewed somebody who's in the service industry, a bartender? And then boom, your email showed up. And I can imagine that somebody who's afraid of heights maybe shouldn't be a trapeze artist. Um, what is it like being a bartender and trying to not drink alcohol? Well, you know, I guess the, par the paradox here is I fell into bartending because of my love of alcohol and partying at a young age. I, well, first of all, growing up in Vegas, it's very easy to just get sucked into the service industry. I started going to college, had children, well, my first daughter when I was 19 years old. Realized quite quickly that I made more money in service industry in Las Vegas than I than my peers who had college degrees. So I was doing cocktails and then gravitated towards bartending because I just I knew there was more money in it and it just seemed like a fun fun thing to do a fun job, especially when you enjoy drinking and being in that atmosphere to begin with. Now I've been doing it for a lot of years. I was going through corporate management and at the last resort I worked in and actually on the road to become a sommelier before my twins were born. And then I knew for a long time that I had issues with drinking. I guess I didn't realize it until I was with the father of my first daughter, whose family was really normal and didn't drink. I come from a family of, of drinkers and drug users, and I just thought that that was normal. That's the way a normal families, normal adults behaved. And his family really didn't drink. If they did, they had one beer, and I thought they were really boring, you know until I kind of grew up a little more and realized that, no, in fact, that was probably normal. 
I think being in service industry, the conundrum you find yourself in is that the culture itself is so centered around drinking and going out, especially in Las Vegas. We just, we call each other other industry, quote unquote, people. And everybody takes care of each other. And it's like this family. And it's sort of the opposite on the spectrum from what AA is, where AA, you know, you're, you tell each other stories to try to relate negative experiences or maybe things that, you know, you're trying to generate reasons to not go back to drinking and there's a there's a positive outcome whereas when you're in a drinking culture you tell each other stuff that even though you know that it's not necessarily what normal people would think is a good thing you kind of laugh about it and joke about it and it's like you get you feed off of those experiences and it reinforces your the wrong ideas in your mind that, okay, that that's an okay thing to do, that that is just something funny to do, that other people you work with are doing the same thing. And so it just becomes another reason to justify your behavior. So I, I think being in the service industry, you know, if that's all you ever hang out with and that's all you're ever doing, then you're really misleading yourself. And, you know, it's better to find that out sooner than later. I agree with that 100%. You know, the service industry night. We have, you guys have your own night. It's called the Sin Night. And you, you and I had a lot in common. I fell in love with alcohol. It was my best friend. And I said, what better way or what better career to go in than to buy a bar in Spain? And that's what I did. Looking back, terrible idea. And you're right, though. I surrounded myself with other people who we would have these conversations and I would affirm to myself, like, okay, blacking out seven nights a week, totally normal. Because Rick, Bob, Susan, and Tina are also doing the same thing. I understand that 100%. And so for the last month, I understand you're, you've been bartending and you've been sober. What has that been like? Well, I'm not in Vegas anymore. So it's not like I get off work and I can just hop next door to the next bar. I live in Pennsylvania now, which is better for me personally. I mean, I don't, I'm not, not going to speak for other people in the service industry, but for me personally, like I can't just get off work and walk next door in the casino to the next bar and just go sit down there with a group of friends. So that's not, that's out of the question. I also, I work in a fine dining establishment and, you know, I deal with a lot of the scotch drinking older patrons that just, you know, sit around and order steaks and things like that. So it's kind of a different environment. That makes it easier. Also, I don't want to say there's a certain immunity, but I'm, I've done this for so long now that it's not like I want to sneak and drink behind the bar or anything like that. I'm used to going through my shift without drinking. I mean, places I've worked before, we've had security cameras. So I'm kind of used to not drinking until I get off work anyways. Before I went to work in this particular establishment, I actually was managing a place closer to home. And being in management was a little different because I could go sample the goods. I, could, I had to taste wines to be able to put them in on the wine list. And I realized quite quickly after going into management that that was not going to be good for me. So I quit that job and went back to bartending in this steakhouse and fine dining establishment that I'm at now. And I feel pretty safe. As long, you know, when I first started there, I would get off work and we could have a shift drink. So I would take a kid cup, fill it with ice fill it to the brim with vodka and take off out the door, wait till I got five minutes from home before I cracked into it. And and I thought that that was like, that was going to be a good routine. And it kept me out of trouble for the most part. And, you know, so, so I thought I found a way to drink that was going to work for me. 
you're always going to fall into to a trap one way or another if you've got this problem. <laughs> so yeah. ob- obviously it wasn't working so well or I wouldn't be talking to you now. <laughs> yeah, and we both tried a ton of different rules in place, you know, like a kid's drink full of ice and only going to drink it a couple, <laughs> you know, a couple, after you leave work. And let's do a story swap, and I know you have a story just like this. Um, it reminded me of a time when I was, I, was a, I was a waiter in a fine dining Italian restaurant up in Beaver Creek, Colorado. Yeah, I, I did the geographical cure from Spain to Colorado, and I felt like I had my drinking under wraps. However, it came the night where we had to taste the wines that we were selling. And so right after about four, five, ten sips of wine, I got buzzed. And I found when I started drinking, it was nearly impossible to stop. So what I did, mid-shift, I took a bottle of wine off the rack, displayed it perfectly over my black napkin on my forearm, walked straight to the back room, uncorked it, and chugged the entire thing within probably a minute and a half. Yeah, your turn. Do you have a similar story like that? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, so about five, between 5 and 7 p.m. every night at the place I worked at before, I would be having the bartenders pouring me vodka and waters, and I would just walk around the restaurant talking to people while I had you know, my drink. I'd stash behind the bar, go take a quick swig, run out, talk to some more people, shake a few more hands, and, you know, but plenty of times. Oh, sure, New Year's Eve, you know, there would be something going around, a bottle of tequila, and I'd make sure I had my cup full. So absolutely, if there was an opportunity, I took it. Well, yeah, you, you have to do a service quality check around the tables. And I mean, you, you look to the bartender back there like, hey, it's quality check time, you know, for the affirmation. Oh, I can't do this sober. Yeah, go ahead and pour me some vodka. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been in the industry. And after being sober long enough, I can tell you right now with 100% certainty, one of the worst parts about being in that environment uh, in sobriety is when people are drunk. I DJed probably a hundred times in bars and nightclubs in, in Montana, totally sober. And right around midnight is when the night started to suck without fail because people come up and request songs and you can't understand them. They're slurring, they're, <laughs> you know, their song requests suck in my opinion. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you notice that too, that staying sober is hard when drunk people are idiots. Yeah. I mean, fortunately for me working in the, the restaurant, like I don't have that issue quite as much. But I do know what you're saying, like when drunk people are idiots. Luckily, when I'm around drunk people, I can just walk away, though. Like I said, like at work, they're, by the time we're ready to close, those people have generally, if there's one or two of them left, I just avoid them till they get up and leave because I'll just stop serving them at that point. Uh, I can imagine for you sitting there or working in a nightclub, because I have worked in nightclubs, that that's like, you know, please just go away from me. I'm tired. Just leave me alone. But I think I'm the type of person that would shrug and be like, yeah, okay, whatever, and then just go play whatever song I wanted to anyway. Yeah, Michael Jackson. Again, you got yeah. it. I, I said that completely wrong, actually. Staying sober is easy when you're around drunk idiots because it tells you, wow, I'm making the right decision or else I, I could be like this guy right now. And, and Melissa, there is so much great content that I want to get to. So let's shift gears a little bit. I'm just going to straight up ask you, when was your bottom? Oh, gosh. The, my, my, my bottom bottom. The catalyst for me to quit at this point, which... Is, is sad to say, like, I, I think I told you in our little conversation before we started, I have a family history of drinking and drugging. And I think, you know, just like with the service industry, if you're raised in a family where every family gathering is, there's there's drinks being passed around, where from the time you're a little kid, your, you know, grandpa's letting you have a sip off of his beer or whatever. I remember being in a restaurant where my aunt let my two-year-old cousin drink out of her margarita and walking out, he was stumbling into the, you know, booths and everybody laughing and thinking that that was funny. Now, at the, I think I was 12 when that happened. Now as an adult, I can tell you, okay, so I'm 41 years old now. 
I would have had 11 first cousins and, and there's 11 of us first cousins, including my sister. There's seven of us left now. Four of us are dead because of drinking related incidents. Wow. And, and number five, if you want to count one of my aunts who um, OD'd on a camping trip with her family. Besides all of that, my bottom came, and this is why I'm kind of leading up to this. I did a Spartan race not too long ago. It was October 22nd in Mount Vernon, New Jersey. It was a Spartan Super, and I was feeling really good about it. And afterwards, the trainer that I work with that kind of had us all uh, put together our team and whatnot, it was her birthday. So it was a birthday party. And I took my daughter, I have a 14-year-old daughter, and she brought her friend, and they came along with me to go to this race. And we had a hotel room and everything. And my drinking, as long as I knew I had a couple things in place, like if I didn't have to drive, if I was either at home or, you know, somebody was around that I knew would revive me if I ended up in trouble, I just, I didn't stop and think about what I would be doing. So we were all partying and having, you know, our time and I don't remember going back to the room, but evidently my daughter and her friend had to come downstairs to that they had sort of like a lobby off to the side area that looked like a study where everybody was hanging out after we had the party in the ballroom. So she put, brought me back up to the room and she took cell phone video of me as she was feeding me chicken nuggets in a blackout where I don't even remember and mumbling and like my eyes were rolling out of my head and I just, I looked like a complete hot mess. And she thought that that was just hysterically funny. Well, you know, I had to really think about that for a couple of days because when I think about what's happened in my family, what happened to my own sister, how dare I perpetuate that sort of a culture and that sort of a, it's okay to look like this, to act like this value system on my children. You know, that's, that's not okay. It's not cool that mom acts that way. It's not funny. So, I, I had to decide the buck stops here. Otherwise, I'm just perpetuating a culture, a family culture that is definitely dangerous. So, yeah, that was my bottom. When I, when I saw that video of myself and, and my daughter's reaction to it, I knew I had to stop. Now, tell me about your sister. So, yes, it was June 23rd, so three days after my birthday, and... I was out, at the, I was taking my kids to a movie or something like that, and I had just gotten home, and I had been trying to get a hold of her all day, because she, she didn't come out on my birthday, because she was out with her friend the night before, and she was too hungover. Well, she had gone to go pick up her friend that she was out with that night, who had puked in the back of her car, and the girl was supposed to pay for her to get her car washed. Well, they went and got the car washed, Jessica dropped her off, decided to stop off at the bar, and was literally half a mile from home when she went to go around somebody who I guess was driving slow in front of her and clipped the curb, crossed over into oncoming traffic, was broadsided and broke her neck. She was 21 years old and she was driving drunk. She, when they tested her blood alcohol, it was like 0.23. You would think that that right there would stop me in my track, but it didn't. It didn't. It maybe it did for a, a short time, but I heard something on one of your podcasts, one of the guys you interviewed, and he talked about the last part of alcoholism being incredibly short memory. And that really resonated with me because you, you don't stop and think about those things when you're in the midst of your selfishness, when you're just trying to get that release that alcohol brings you in your head. So I, I wouldn't think about those things. I did avoid drinking and driving, although I did manage to get a DUI at one point. Yeah, spending the night in jail, that's, a, that's another fun one. But 
I don't know. I, I, I was literally raised in a culture, family culture, that laws were in place as merely an inconvenience. They weren't necessarily something you had to follow. If you could get away with doing something, you know, do it. Melissa, I first off, I'm so sorry to hear about your sister, and and thank you so much for sharing that because I can guarantee it's gonna it's gonna help a lot of people. And there's there's some good that that, that just came out of that. Um, it, it has helped me hearing things like that because this is real. And after interviewing over almost 100 people, there's a ton of you would have thought you would have thought I would have quit drinking after this 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 this. And when I asked you when when was your bottom, you're like, well, this bottom, right? Is every bottom has a trap door. And this thing is so real, uh, listeners. A lot of times, you know, I make jokes on the podcast, but in reality, this thing is life or death. You know, and and fear does not keep us sober. Fear will get us sober. And I think you mentioned that you know you stopped drinking for a little bit, and you know you tried to stop drinking and driving, but fear will not keep us sober. Um, What is your experience with that? Well, you're absolutely right. You really have to reach a point where you're done, where you know you're done. When Jessica died, I was only 25 years old, and I didn't really know anything about AA. I didn't really consider myself an alcoholic at that point. I just considered myself young, and I thought it was just something that was an unfortunate accident. So I hadn't acquired the life history, and at that point, I'd never had a DUI. I'd never lost a job or a relationship over drinking. It was more like I would just party and get drunk sometimes. It it hadn't become a real life problem, I guess, at that point. So it's not until I was 32 years old, I guess it was, when I actually went into AA. I, I, you know, I, I had just gotten a DUI. Thank God it was the only one I ever got. But I, I did have to spend the night in jail. And I actually assaulted the police officer. And it cost me like $10,000 because it, it was just an ugly mess. But I had to move back in with my mom. And she insisted that I go get help. So I went into like a state It wasn't really a rehab. I only had to stay like two days, but I did have to go to some meetings there. And I went into AA after that. And I only stayed for probably two or three months. I learned a lot of valuable things there. But in the course of going to AA, I discovered lore tabs and painkillers. So I was taking those under a doctor's care. Of course, the doctor wasn't exactly the most scrupulous guy, but I figured like as long as I was only taking one every four hours or at the most two every four hours, I didn't have a problem. So I basically just swapped one addiction for another. And I was running. I I got four marathons under my belt. I thought, you know, I've got this popping a pill that is being given to me legitimately by a doctor. Like even if I get pulled over, here's my prescription officer. You know, it was like... It was like, this is okay, but I, I dropped out of AA because I knew I couldn't consider myself quote-unquote sober if I was sitting there take, in the meeting room taking opioids. It didn't feel honest to me, so I just I dropped out of that. And I thought I had a handle for a couple of years. I'd saved money living with my mom, bought a house, thought, you know, I'm on cloud nine. I bought my own house. Things are going great. At, literally, it was my housewarming party, and people were bringing over bottles of wine and champagne. And so I cracked into the wine. And that was the first time I drank in two and a half years. So now I'm drinking, and I'm still taking the pills. That went on for uh, probably seven or eight months until I had an episode where my fiance went out of town and... I thought, woohoo, you know, cat's away, the mouse is going to play. So I went over to the resort where I worked and went to one of the bars in there and was, you know, hanging out, talking to people I knew I worked with and whatever, having a good old time. Next thing you know, I wake up in my room like, you know, WTF, 
and rolled over and looked at the clock. It said six. I thought, oh, shoot, it's early. No, it was 6 p.m., and I was supposed to be at work at 6 p.m. So I don't know when I got home. I slept the entire day, woke up freaking out, couldn't find my purse, couldn't find my phone, ran out of my house in my pajamas to one of my neighbor's houses, had to go in, use her phone so I could call my job, tell them what was going on, which was hugely embarrassing. Luckily, I didn't lose my job, but I couldn't find my car, which, as it turned out, was parked in my garage, which is where I never parked it. So somebody drove me home. I don't remember any yeah. of this. I, I, you know, I was like, oh, good, I didn't drive home. Yeah, but, but like, self-loathing you know, is at level ten right about now, also. Oh my God, it was awful, you know. And then my husband, who, like I said, we weren't married at the time, but he was calling me all. Day. He was totally worried about. It. And it turned out my purse was like in my closet on the floor. So obviously, I stumbled in at whatever stupor I was in and just dropped it on the floor, you know, climbed into bed, whatever. Everything was intact, and I just kept it to myself. Like I, I thought, oh, dodged that bullet. Well, like a month or two later, I just thought, you know what, I got to get off these these pills. And I told John, take. I said, just take them from me, dump them, do whatever you want, save five of them so you can give me one day, one one day, you know, just to wean me myself off. And I got off those things on my own. It took probably, I would say, two or three months before I felt normal as far as not feeling withdrawals like the first couple weeks of coming off an opioid with I mean I don't know I didn't go under a doctor's care to get off of them but you're literally like sweating your stomach hurts and I wasn't even I I knew people that took those things like 10 20 30 a day and I, I didn't do that I took maybe six or seven in a day sometimes maybe even three in a day but I I didn't go through a day without them for over two years. So it wasn't easy getting off of those. And like I said, that was only five or six days. I don't know what people go through. And I can understand why some people end up on heroin and everything else when you get into them that deep. So if you're taking those things, that would be the first thing I kicked is those pills. They're they're horrible what you go through just to get off a few a day. So I got off that and I thought, okay, I'm cool. Now now I'll just drink. So rode that wagon and then I ended up getting pregnant. We got married. I got pregnant. I didn't drink for nine months. And that was another reason, I guess, I've always told myself that, no, you're not an alcoholic. is because, you know, I've got four kids, three pregnancies, the last two are twins. When I've been pregnant, I've been able to put it down, not look back. And, you know, when I stopped drinking for two years, it was like I substituted one thing for another. So I don't know that, that I can say that I was I put it down and didn't look back necessarily. But those were just justifications in my mind all this time that I don't have a drinking problem because I can stop drinking. Sure. Um, nipped it in the butt for nine months. You're good. Right, exactly. But the thing is, as soon as those babies came out and the minute I got stressed out, what did I reach for? A bottle of wine. I didn't reach for a book. I didn't reach for crocheting needles. You know, (laughs) Not a meditation disc. No. (laughs) Yeah, no. It was, you know, where's the wine? So, yeah, so wine was my thing, and that quickly turned to vodka once we moved to Pennsylvania. It was also pretty funny because coming from Las Vegas to Pennsylvania, I had no idea about the liquor laws here, and (laughs) that was pretty frustrating for a minute. So, yeah, I drove all around town just to get some beer because you can't buy wine or beer. They're only available at state liquor stores on Sunday night at 9 o'clock or whatever. So I went through that scenario. Anyway, it it just became a mess. I I can't have, like you say, you can't, one's too many, 20's never enough. Once I pop, I can't stop. Quite the pickle we find ourselves in. And listeners, what I hear right now is a tremendous inspirational journey. Because a lot of us get knocked over by alcohol. And I can only speak from my own experiences. I got my ass kicked countless times. However, 
I kept getting back up. And Melissa, this is what I hear from you. You keep getting back up. And us, we are a courageous lot of people because I think a lot of people, they would not get back up. But for some reason, those of us who are successful in sobriety, that's the one thing we have in common is we don't quit. We just keep getting back up. Even when the odds are so stacked against us, you know, it sounds like when you're 32, you got your DUI, you assaulted an officer at $10,000. That was nine years ago. You're 41 right now and you've got a month of sobriety on your belt, which is tremendous. 30 days is a lot. In the grand scheme of things, 30 days, which is something to build upon, but you're still in early sobriety. Hell, I'm in early sobriety with a little over two years, but I just got to tell you, on this side of the microphone, Melissa, pat yourself on the back because you, whether you're at the end of it or in the middle of it, I don't know. I hope you're at the tail end of your journey to sobriety, but this is inspirational. I just got to, I got to tell you that and, and nice job. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. If you would have asked me two months ago when the last time I went a night without drinking was, I couldn't tell you. And for me to make it this far is like, okay, <laughs> wow. I, I feel great about it, honestly. And, and how, how have you done it in the last 30 days? Well, I'll be honest, like, and this isn't, I'm not trying to be obsequious here, but your your podcast has helped me out a lot. I, and this is good and bad. I'm going to say I should be going to AA meetings and that's sort of my future plans. But I need to be constantly reminded of what it's like to be a drunk and what it's like to be out there waking up in the morning thinking, God damn it, I, I did this shit again. Why did I do this to myself? What's wrong with me? You know, it's like, I need to know that, that I'm not the only one, that this is something about me that I have to just get used to the fact that I can't drink and like a normal person. So I will forget those things quite easily the minute I get bored, the minute I get pissed off about uh, something, the the, you ism, know, the incredible short memory continue. Yes. Yes. So that, that's the biggest thing for me is those are my pitfalls. If I get out there and find myself where I'm just bored and I got nothing better to do, or I'm in one of those social situations where everybody's having one. I have to constantly remind myself and I have to think about how disappointed I would be, not only in myself, but how, what a failure of a parent I would be if I, if I give in to that. So it, it's just that constant reminder of, you know, listening to your podcast or talking to somebody like I've got a guy at work who's been sober for five years and I'll, you know, he'll be like, hey, how long has it been today? And, you know, we'll kind of knuckle bump or whatever. And it's just that camaraderie. Melissa, before we get to the rapid fire round, I want to touch up on two value bombs that you just said. Number one is the affirmations. You have to constantly remind yourself. Simply listening to this podcast weekly or the share podcast or um, you know, that sober guy podcast, the bubble hour, there's so many out there that are fantastic. Simply doing that once a week or every other day will remind yourself your unconscious mind is listening, whether you are or not. And you're going to tell yourself, right? The incredible short memory is an extremely dangerous thing because for me, my last drink, that memory is fleeting. However, when I'm on the phone with you doing this interview, uh, you know, this podcast has been tremendously helpful for me as well. Melissa, for that very reason, it constantly reminds myself. And the second one, you just said accountability right there. You said you were talking to somebody who has five years of sobriety and he's like, Hey, Melissa, how much time you got? You know, you're telling other people and you'd be pretty disappointed if that guy was like, Hey, Melissa, how much time you got? You're like, well, you know, I'm, I got chicken nuggets in my pocket. And what does that tell you? Right. That sucks. You know, but like accountability is key. So congrats on that. Two value bombs I want to point out there. And Melissa, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? 
Go for it. Go for it. I love it. Number one, Melissa, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, wow. I guess waking up in the hospital on my 36th birthday after having a cabana all day and thinking, and I'd spent all this money on hotel rooms and it was a big birthday party planned, woke up in the hospital like, what the hell happened? Yes, I've had many a fantasy football drafts in Vegas and can understand how that happens. The next question, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating you can't control your alcohol? Oh, yeah, many times. You know, every time I woke up with, probably heard the term CRS, can't remember shit. That was like becoming more and more frequent, more and more frequent. And I I knew it. I just didn't want to admit it to myself. Now, next question, Alyssa, you've got 30 days. How are you going to get 31, 32, 60, 90? What's your plan moving forward? Well, what I really need to do is just break down and go find a meeting. I I briefly looked into meetings in my area. Couldn't really find one that worked with my schedule, but I think I need to broaden my search. I need to start those 12 steps because I think it's important to, you know, start pulling my personal weeds and start, you know, tending my garden a little better so I can grow. I think when you, when you drink, you're suppressing a lot of that pain, a lot of that, you know, emotional scarring you've got. And unless you dig that out and and really examine it and put it away like it's supposed to, you're, you're really inhibiting your personal growth. Start pulling my personal weeds. I like it. Yeah. And next question, besides the podcast, thank you very much for mentioning that. What's your favorite resource in recovery? Well, I listen to the big book in my car on my way back and forth to work. You know, I mentioned to you before, I have four-year-old twins. When I'm at home, I'm cleaning my house. I'm dealing with them. I'm doing, you know, there's so much going on. I just, I stay busy. I I guess, you know, not having idle hands. And then when I'm in the car driving around, I'm either listening to a podcast about recovery or I'm listening to the big book. It's it's not a weekly thing. It's a daily thing. It's, you know, two or three podcasts. It's books. Whenever I have an opportunity and I'm in my car by myself, that's what I'm listening to because it's it has to be a daily part of my life. That just reminded me in episode 50, I interview a gentleman named Cameron who actually recorded his own affirmations and would play it back for himself. Like, Cameron, we are not drinking today, buddy. And we just play the tape <laughs> over and over and over. And I speak with Cameron regularly. He's been sober for over a year. He's rocking it. Nice job, Cameron. Next question, I'm going to compile these two into one. Melissa, what's the best advice you've ever received regarding this whole sobriety thing? And then what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about quitting drinking? Two things, really. I remember, you know, from a few years ago, this is stuck out a few years ago. It's been like nine years ago. But one of the old timers in the meetings that I went to a long time ago told a story about alcoholics being like people who there's two doors to go outside your house and get to your car and one's a shorter distance. But every time you open that door, there's a monkey standing outside of it and he's ready to kick your ass. And an alcoholic will continue to go out that door every single time and let that monkey kick his ass. Well, we have to figure out that that's not the door to go through. We got to go through the other door and it's a longer way to walk to the car, but that's the one you got to go through. So I feel like at this point, now I've gone through that door. I got to keep walking. And the only way for me to keep walking is to by constantly reminding myself, letting people around me know that drinking is not a, an okay thing for me to do, that I don't drink and, and admitting to it and looking at myself and being humble about it instead of thinking that I'm okay. You got to, you got to really humble yourself. You've got to, if you're listening to this podcast right now, chances are you've got a problem and you should probably address it because it's not going to get you anywhere positive. 
Melissa, I've gotten emails from people. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm an episode 72. I'm not really sure I'm an alcoholic yet. It is just my fingers on the keyboard. Like, Hmm, how do I get this Mm -hmm. point across? You're a hundred percent correct. And before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if when you've got company over your house and they're not looking, you're taking swigs off the vodka bottle in, in between your glasses of wine because you don't feel like you're drunk enough yet. Now I know nine out of ten of you right now listening or nodding your head be like, yep, I've done something just like that. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us and helping me stay sober. Hey, if it helps one person, it's totally worth it. Thank you. On to the themes, but first, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. In podcast episode 48, I talk about the mirror test, a poem that describes the man in the mirror. It's also my favorite Michael Jackson song as discussed previously. However, over time, I didn't recognize the man in the mirror when I looked at myself in the mirror. I had trouble reaching my own eyes with my gaze. I was always looking down. I was always looking right. When the fog had steamed up the mirror, I made a point not to wipe away the fog because I didn't want to look at myself. I was ashamed. I was disgusted. I couldn't quite fathom how it had come to this, but I was still in denial. It wouldn't be for another decade that I would be able to finally look myself in the mirror. Another theme I'd like to tie into this is the false dreams that I had while drinking. I remember this very clearly. About the third month there, when I was drinking in the day, I would chug hard alcohol, and then I'd go back to bed. But before I went back to bed, my brain would take me to really cool places. Yeah, I was driving a yacht, or sailing a yacht, however you do that. I was managing successful businesses across the world. I was doing amazing things in my brain, and alcohol was allowing me to do these things. I was also planning a false life in my head while drinking. I was going to be a star of the Spanish-American football team. Well, I separated my shoulder about three games in. I was going to travel to all these countries around Europe, but really, they were just false promises. The alcohol allowed me to go to those places for a short time being in my brain. But really, those actions, they never took place. And eventually, when the drinking stopped, I couldn't even go to those places in my head. So when I was not allowed to escape my reality via the alcohol in my own head... Well, bring on the geographical cure. Paul, I will pat you on the back for that. You did a smart thing. You walked away from the bar in Spain. You survived that. You went through hell and back and you made it. But I did the geographical cure. Moved back home to Colorado. Hello, Mom and Dad, Molly and Perry. Thanks for hosting me for another year and a half. And then I went to Washington, the state, to get a grad school degree. Was it the right move? I don't know. Am I ever going to use it? Probably not. It did land me in Bozeman, Montana, where my final pathway is. And I love it here. This place is remarkable. You guys are all welcome to come check it out when we have our retreat here next August 24th to 27th. But yeah, geographical cure, check. Done that many times. 
And the last theme I'd like to incorporate into this podcast episode was, when I was in Spain, I realized I didn't have to change much. I just had to change everything. Yep, everything. But you're going to have to get to a point, and I did as well, where what do you want more? Do you want to maintain part of your identity, or do you want to live? And that's how drastic it got for me. There was no fraction or even a sliver of hope that I could maintain my identity and survive. Yeah, not be a bar owner and be happy, but even be a bar owner and be alive. That's where it got to me. So I had to change everything. But like I said, I am thankful for all of those opportunities of adversity because I prevailed. I'm here today. I would not be the person that I am today if I had not have overcome that adversity. And if you find yourself in that situation, I highly recommend you look at this as an opportunity, an opportunity that a lot of other people don't get to improve their lives, to drastically change the outcome of your life. As I mentioned in the previous podcast episode, choice does not come into factor when we are addicted to alcohol. However, choice comes into factor and comes into play when we seek out help. So I encourage you to do just that. Let somebody in on the fact that your identity is exhausting and you're maintaining that identity at the cost of what? So recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.